Who's there? Okay. <laughs> Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Kim Watson for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is June 18th, 2019, and this has been recorded at Kim Watson's office in the Bronx. Hello, Kim. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Kim Watson. Do you want to start off and introduce yourself? So I'm Kim Watson. I am the, I'm an author, I'm an advocate. I am the founder, one of the um, co-founders of Community Kinship Life, which is CK Life. I'm also the vice president here. I, I'm also the author of The Modern Day Woman and I'm also one of the renowned activists within the transgender community. Wonderful. Uh, tell us about CK Life. So CK Life mission is always to serve individuals of transgender and gender nonconforming individuals so that we can actually service them in mental health, medical, or clinical health. And this is like for societal economic norms in which that individuals are able to educate themselves or come and meet individuals that they can relate to within um, the community and hopefully meet some new individuals. Sounds like a great mission. Yes. How do you go about that? Well, my vision, the way how I go about it is actually intertwining within the community and putting myself in the community because I don't forget where I came from. So actually I go out in the community or folks always find me on the website or social media and stuff like that and really connect with me so that um, either they want to allocate services and get services that I provided, um, I provide or they actually just want to find a place to relate and that they could come and sit and have a discussion with me. This is your full-time work? <sighs> work. This is a lot of work. I do not get paid. This is volunteer. Um, I haven't got a paycheck since 2010, and that was from my old job. Since I took on CK Life, I took my 4-3 plan, B plan, and came out and said, okay, and joined forces with another individual and said, okay, let's create an organization because the reason why we created the organization is because we went to the Philly Trans Health Conference and we have been planning to um, help and plan the Philly Trans Health Conference for the last 12 years. So basically there were a lot of resources that was happening there that actually no one was really sharing the resources, especially medical and clinical health in the transgender and gender nonconforming community. So we thought it would be best to hit the ground going and create an organization that is by us for us. Yeah. So how do you um, pay rent and make your bills? Getting paid. Personally, professionally, I'm being hosted by um, Bright Point. I don't know for how long I will be here, but for the last two years, I'm here at Bright Point. Before that, ten years, I stayed ten years at. Um, Bronx, Lebanon, and I created a program there. We've created, CKL has created a program there. So basically, um, the way I, well, I have a daughter, and the way I pay my rent to be very transparent, I have to depend on HRA and stuff like that to get rent paid, to eat, and stuff like that. So everything I do 
his volunteered, um, but I do fundraisers and go back in the community. So this work that I do is volunteer work. And one of the things that I'm learning today is that you can have a passion and passion will keep you broke. You have to really have a passion with equal purpose and have a purpose which will help you get monies come in. And when it comes to monies and grants and stuff like that, I choose or we choose not to change our mission or vision just to have monies. So I'm really learning that a lot of other translated organizations that have come after us, they have tweaked their visions or tweaked their mission or anything of that nature, but we choose to stay grounded with ours. And that's how fun is. And then another thing, um, I'm not a truly grant writer, so basically I try to get interns and stuff like that to come in and serve with me and see how we can look at it from that standpoint and hopefully get grants. Yeah. Wow. So you're doing all this work and needing... Not getting paid. Not getting paid and relying on, on social service support. For yes. Us. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's uh, learn a little bit about how you came to this. So, where tell me about your growing up. What was your childhood Ooh, like? That would be in a modern day woman. So, my childhood like was um being very effeminate. And back then, they never used to talk about intersex. They used to talk about hermaphrodites, which is a derogatory derogatory term within the community now. Um, but at the age of fifty five, I'm fifty five now, so that goes a long way back was very effeminate so I went to school and stuff like that and a lot of things that are being dealt with in America is which I have dealt with in um, where I came from from Barbados so I dealt with a lot of discrimination a lot of barriers a lot of real um, derogatory barriers and stuff like that and I had to fight I had to fight to get my life through and then um coming up is like I reached 25 to rush to 25 and then um, I say okay um, it's time to leave and I really came to America to be a fa- in fashion institute to be in cosmetology and stuff like that but this is where I end up I felt that there was a need in the community and I end up doing this yeah I do a lot of motivation speaking um, to support myself I don't get a lot of that but as an intentional motivation speaker I would go out and Folks will probably book me, and I will be able to get whatever um, to survive on. But basically, if I had to really put a price on that, I don't think that folks would be able to pay me to speak. And um, I think it's around negotiation skills where my logistics is concerned. Because I don't think that um, a lot of folks are ready to pay um Motivators or intentional speakers like myself, they amount of money and stuff like that to just speak. There may be some people out there that um, are able to get it, but unfortunately, me being um, partnered with so many people and doing so much services, so people know that I do a lot of services, free of cost and stuff like that. So when I start to talk about monies, then they look for the next new person that's coming along to say, okay, um, she's over there charging, you probably would do it. I'm free because you want to be uplifted or promoted. What was Barbados like when you were growing up? What was going on broadly in Barbados and in your family? Well, my family had never had never had an issue with me or anything of that nature. Um, growing up in Barbados, uh, um, well, you had to fight. 
Um, growing in the Barbados was um, could have been very challenging, but family oriented was um, amazing, and it were fruits and stuff like that. I don't know what it's like because I haven't been back in thirty five years now. Yeah. And how did you end up moving to New York? Well, I moved to New York and I came. I was actually coming to go to school. But then within 30 days, the family that I was residing with, which is my family, my cousins and them, they put me out in the streets. So within 30 days, I was homeless in New York City. So I had to fend for myself throughout since 30, um, those 30 days were gone. So I had to be here doing what I need to do best. Tell me about your time being homeless. My times being homeless, well, that was really um, a detrimental and dark part of my life and knowing that dealing with um, psychiatry, and that's why one of my um, pet peeves are mental health and hygiene, because that a lot of things that I've been through before, it got swept underneath the rug, and it was such a bad time for me, because I, I could not remember, so I had to deal with, um, I had to go into deep therapy at some point in time to try to remember all the abuse that I've dealt with or anything of that. So um, when it comes to physical, sexual abuse or anything of that nature, I've dealt with so many of that um, back in the days that it got blocked out. And then being homeless, being um, in the streets and being a prostitute and fending for myself and trying to figure out where, where my next meal coming from or what am I going to do or whatever the case may be, you know, those things. Um, came into play so I had to hustle I had to sell my body I had to make sure that I survive out of the street when there's garbage cans and I try to find some food around our supermarket that's throwing with stuff I had to eat out of the garbage can to survive so my survival my survival was really 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 crazy yeah so I um during that time being out there I contracted HIV um there was a whole roller coaster of trying to be with men that definitely did not want me per se, but just wanted what my actions were as a young person. Because I'm talking about in my 20s, my early 20s and stuff like that. And, you know, it led to me then being diagnosed with um, HIV and AIDS back in 1986. So after running around in 86 and drugs and doing drugs and stuff like that, being a drug addict, you know, it took me for a turmoil. So that's where, yeah. Where would you sleep during during those years? I would sleep um, from couch to couch or just sleep in um, abandoned buildings. Mostly it was abandoned buildings. I would end up in abandoned buildings, drug-infested buildings. Um, yeah, sometimes I never sleep. I would be, it would be 24-7, so, yeah. What were, um, were you a part of any sort of communities or scenes during that time? Like, did you know LGBT people who were also homeless? Or? I knew a lot of people that were homeless, especially um, sometimes in the underground ballroom scene. I've never walked on anything, but I was associated with the ballroom scene. Like, just guilty by association in the ballroom scene. Um, but I've never been a really ball person or whatever the case may be. And then there were a lot of people we used to live in this abandoned house and um, all of us used to put up together and make sure the electricity is on and stuff like that. Most of us was um, 
prostitutes and just um, runaways from wherever. And being out there on a survival mode was making sure that I get what I need. That's all. Yeah. Tell me about the abandoned house that you all lived in. Well, for the abandoned house, um, it used to be like a group home. First, it used to be like a group home. And it has all these, um, all of us young youth in there. So it was just like you could find a spot. And everybody was finding a spot. And if anybody moved out and got better or lived, lived different, we would get the room that they were living in and stuff like that. And that was during a lot of my, at an early start, um, uh, my drug addicted days and stuff like that. So it wasn't hard to really find a banner house or find a place in um, our room in the abandonment building to sleep. So, yeah. Do you remember where it was located? It was located in Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah. Located in Brooklyn. What years were you? This is back in, ooh. This is back before the 90s, uh, probably um, 99 and under, 98. Yeah, in the 90s. Yeah, in the 80s, 90s. I was running the street because I had a fan for myself. I had nobody to look for it. I had no family or anything. Yeah, the street became my family. Yeah, but people found ways of taking care of each other. Yes. Yes, we did. On survival modes, we find ways of like making sure that each other eat and each other get what they need and stuff like that. Yeah. Is there more you could say about that or stories about that? It's crazy. Oh. Well, there was sometimes that um, when I tried to get better, I I would do performances. Um, I would do anything to make money. So I would do parties, I would do um, performances, I would go to the clubs, I would come down to the village. One of the things that I run through with the village um, is I never was like a village person. And then when I started coming down to the village, um, I started to make um, village like the village like a part-time home for me because I used to go down to the village and I would sleep in the village and hang out in the village and start making friends. There's a lot of friends that I've made that majority today that they're gone they're dead and gone so you know it's not like um like this is my sister me and my sister been together know each other for 25 years and she's dead and gone for the last five years um six years gonna say her name was princess janae and that was a sister that i could say that she was a sister there was no deceit there was nothing there was nothing that they was going to we always protected each other. There was nothing, um, there's nothing bad that came out of us. And we were really great. Even um, although I was very effeminate and she had not transitioned as yet, but we were really, really, really cool. It was a whole um, a group of us that was really cool. We, at times we fight because they were family. At times we fight and whatever the case may be, but otherwise everything else was amazing. Do you remember a story about Princess Janae that you would share a little bit about what she was like? <laughs> My sister, Princess Janae, she was the best renowned lip syncer ever. She was the best pageantry person ever. She would go to any state and come home with a crown. She um, she used to work at Escalators. I, two potatoes. She's who got me involved with two potatoes performing. Back in the, the village, we would hang out together. Um, 
she, yeah, two potatoes was a place in the city that um is no longer there no more, and is where everybody would go to hang out, and all the performances would happen. So if there's no performances happening at Stonewall or the monster, it's always two potatoes. Everybody came from two potatoes or started at two potatoes first. Yeah, and that was amazing because so Princess Janae, she was so amazing at what she did when it comes to artistry and performances and stuff like that. She was one of the individuals that never really cared about being a female or trans. She just did, she just did stuff and dressed up because she used to do impersonation. She was an impersonator, and she went from two potatoes. She grew up to Stonewall, Escalators. Escalators was one of the last places that she been at when she got um, lymphoma and cancer, and um, Janine used to cook. Me and Janine. Okay, so um. I don't work on Mondays, and then if you see me in the office on Monday that I'm doing something or doing some sort of work on Monday, because Janae, we used to call it Me Mondays. We both used to take time, or we would go, and that was a day that we go out and look for what we were going to wear this week, shop for wigs and stuff like that, and then we would always go to her house, and she would cook. She would make, uh, like, peach cobbler and... She loved to cook um, banana pudding. She loved apple pie. Her favorite thing was apple pie. And it's my favorite. <laughs> she loved apple pie and um, um, chunky monkey ice cream by Ben and Jerry. Yes. She loved that ice cream so bad. And you could tell that, like, if she's going through something or not. Because she always wanted the apple pie and the chunky monkey ice cream mixed together. And she would just sit there and eat and she got me in tune with that because, like, when I'm really going through something and when I'm stressing out, I would really go and get the chunky monkey ice cream and stuff like that. Yeah. So my days with her was really amazing. Um, Do you remember? Uh, she. We met in Brooklyn. We met in Brooklyn while we were running around, like, as young people together. Um, when Janae um, was really getting sick and she remissed and the cancer went away and then the cancer came back again. And then she was in and out of the hospital. I was able to see Janae pass away, takes her last her last breath. Um, yeah, in September twenty thirteen. I think it was either the sixteenth, sixteenth of September, September sixteenth, twenty thirteen, and that's the last time I saw um, Janae took her last breath. She used to always call me um, this Jamaican bitch, and she would be like, bitch, you're not gonna stop, this Jamaican bitch. And the same thing, like, um, my daughter just told me, my children, one of my children's daughters just told me, I'm always doing so much for the community and don't get paid, and the community always doing this and doing this to me. She used to tell me that. She used to say, why don't you stop doing for the community? I'd be like, oh my God, it's my passion, this is what I'm here to do. And she would be like, oh girl, well you're not getting paid, how are you doing? One of the questions, how are you paying right now, all this? And it's like, I don't know, it's going to be paid. Something's going to happen. You know, so she used to really get aggravated of uh, the way how people would take advantage of me and stuff like that. She was really, really pissed about that. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, Janae. Janae's my girl. I, um, I actually... But I, I remember her a lot, and I don't actually cry for her no more. I talk about don't cry for me, Argentina, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah. 
it's hard remembering these stories. So this led up to all this. I've done so much um, work and everything. Um, I have a couple of, I used to, like my kids, my kids, my chosen kids, my chosen kids would be in and out of my life. Um, sometimes my chosen kids don't like the way I speak to them or whatever the case may be because I'm too nurturing and I'm too stern, I'm too motherly and stuff like that. Um, but I have, uh, I have a lot of chosen kids that they love me and they want to protect me, but I don't allow them to really protect me in that sense. Um, so right now it's only two two of them that really have stayed close to me. Uh, at this moment, really and truly, none of them come around because uh, situations is happening and it is it is so heartfelt. Like. I did not, I haven't questioned myself of being a good parent because I know I'm a good parent and stuff like that. And I've made sure that folks get what they need or whatever the case may be. But then another thing is that it would be selfish of me to put anything that I am dealing with on my kids because that's selfish. And I'm just not going to do that. And they, they feel it's wrong. They feel like I'm not opening up and stuff like that. But I can't open up. Because it's none of their concern. They have their own life to live and stuff like that. I can't open up. Is that about opening up about your feelings or about the hardships in your life right now? The hardships in my life right now. They know what's going on. But there's nothing that they, I think that they're at a point that they, there's nothing that they can do, you know. Um, I wish that they would support more. I wish that they were underneath me. Um, I wish that they were much closer, closer to me. I wish that they would stay around me. I wish that, I wish that some of the friends that they keep was not their friends, you know, those kind of things. But as a parent, I can't stop that. I have to let them choose their own destiny, you know. Um, and it's sad. So what were the years that you were homeless in Brooklyn? Oh, throughout um, 86 to like, 86, to like 95 or so, off and on. And what part of that time were you active in the village, like going to the village a lot? Oh, all that time. Yeah. All that time I used to be in the village. I used to be a Keller, sound factory bar. Um, I just used to hit the clubs. I used to be, like the village were open like every day. And it's not only coming to the village and hang out or just sleep in the village or overstay in the village. But also like Two Potatoes and Keller's was places that 
was always open that you could have go to. You go to the village, you can hang out there. You know there's a hangout spot. You're not thinking like, oh, I'm going to the village and nothing going to be open. They're going to be open. They stay open till wee hours at 6 o'clock in the morning. What was Two Potatoes like? Two Potatoes um, was like a family-oriented place, like a space like um, a lot of folks that we became sisters and brothers and family came out of Two Potatoes. We, Two Potatoes was amazing. It was a small place, but it was really amazing. They were able to build a stage um, for the performers to perform out. They had a bar. They uh, sometimes if they're having events, they would pick up. They would pick up at the door and stuff like that. Yeah. What were the What was the crowd like? The crowd was like amazing. It was really. Um, it was a always. It was stay crowded. It was really really amazing place there. Some people say two potato, one potato, one potato, two potato. But it's two potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, was it um, mostly queer or gay? Was it Every person trans? in the LGBT yeah. spectrum. Yeah. Back then, we didn't talk about no trans. Yeah, Back yeah. then, there were nothing spoke about trans. It was always like drag queens or female impersonations or anything of that nature. Back then, there wasn't nothing trans. And you used the word hermaphrodite or intersex to describe yourself. Yeah. Um, basically, um, I was with my chromosomes. I was born with an overbalance of female hormones, and everything that everything that is seen with me is from my DNA. Is from my DNA. So, I look. I'm a splitting image between my mom and my grandmother. Yeah. So it's not like um, hormones have done this or hormones have done that. I've taken hormones before. And I scarcely take hormones now. It's just my DNA. Yeah. And I've never done, um, I've done a couple of surgeries. I've done a couple of surgeries, but I've never filled silicone into my body or anything of that nature. Yeah. How did you get off the streets? I got off the streets because I went into rehab. I went into rehab and I decided that this was time, this was time to get into rehab and change my life change my world around or try to change my world around. I don't know if it was going to change around or not because once I, I believe that once I had it, always I had it and there's a revolving door. So, you know, um, not only incarceration or anything like that, but there's a revolving door. So my life been at risk. I've been living my life at risk forever. What motivated you to go to rehab? What motivated me to go to rehab is that um, my mom had heard that I died. It wasn't me that died. It was another person, but in the same space that I hang out in. So they, um, this person that died, they found a person in a black garbage bag in a dumpster, and it was really crucial. So where I used to hang out, this dumpster where they found the person was, and they resonate me or relate me to that space. And yeah. Is there anyone else from that time of your life besides Princess Janae that you want to share about or remember now? Not necessarily. That's just my sister. Not necessarily. There's a lot of individuals that um, are part, part of the Pose FX that been there back in the days. Um, just not calling the name because um, 
amenity or anything of that nature. Sure. Um, but there's a lot of individuals that's in the new show pose. Um, a lot of people that um, are doing what they do best or growing in the community or have organizational stuff like that that been back there from back in those days. We call it old school days. Where did you go to rehab? Oh, I went to, first I went to Odyssey House, and then I went to ARC, I think it was called, ARC, and then I end up with a transitional period, I end up at Maitri, M-A-I-T-R-I, Maitri um, Adult Day Program. So I used to go to Maitri Adult Day Program, and that really centered me and stuff like that, and I started to do... AIDS act up, AIDS watch, and stuff like that in Albany. So when I started telling my story, folks was like, yeah. And then I was able to get onto the PPG. I did some consulting and working with the AIDS Institute and the Department of Health. And yeah, that's where it all started. So it snowballed down from there. What were the rehab programs like for LGBT people? Well, um, I don't know. What was it like? It was just as regular. It was just regular. Um, yeah, what was it like? I don't know. I was just a human being. Yeah, yeah they just treated me as a human being. They didn't separ- separate me. They didn't segregate me or anything of that nature. It wasn't no um, kind of oppression or anything going on. I was just there. I didn't know that I had to do my days or whatever the case may be. And that was it. And uh, you got involved with the PPG, you said? I got with the PPG, which was Prevention Planning Group, which is the HPG now. I don't know what HPG stands for now, but it was all with the Department of Health and the AIDS Institute um, collaboration. And um, I've done a lot of work with them because of my HIV um, education background. So a lot of my HIV education backgrounds um, came with um, dealing with them, working with them. So we have a lot of interviews in the Trans Oral History Project with women that have moved from being on the streets or in sex work into HIV services, working in HIV services. Can you tell me a little bit about what that transition is like and what, how, how it was for you and whether other people were doing that at the same time or later? The transition with that period is so bittersweet because, um, if I had to do this all over again, I would not do it because this can be very burnt out. This is very burnt out. I had to set my schedule up to get some self-care. This can be like um, working in this field, make folks think that they're entitled. They're entitled to do whatever they want to. Um, working in this field is amazing though because that's why I said um, bittersweet. I love working in this field. I love working for the community. I love providing stuff for the community. I love being a leader in the community and that nurturing leader in the community. You know, um, working in this field, yeah, it can be ups and downs. Yeah, it has their own. Um, working in this field has specific narratives that are really like, oh, I'm not feeling that today. Oh, okay. You know, that kind of thing. And Working in this field has seen some people that's been appreciated, some people are grateful, and then other people that could be opportunists and could be very bitter. Yeah. Yeah. 
Were there other uh, trans people that you had known on the streets that uh, ended up in HIV services as well? Yeah, there are a couple of individuals that I realized that um, I've seen in the streets, so I have associated with in the streets, and now they're um, actually um, part of HIV and AIDS education. Um, yeah, really amazing. They're blessed to be doing such good work. Do you have a sense of when there started to be those positions or roles opening up for people, like when that when that began? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not really, really, really sure about that. I think it's probably, um, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure about when it started opening up or whatever. But I know that I have created such a pathway so that individuals can actually be seeing the visibility. Back then, I created this whole visibility piece that um, folks were introduced to individuals that they probably might thought that there wasn't trans or whatever the case may be, but then they're trans. And trans really came um, down the chute and all this whole umbrella even was resonated through funding, gen um, city and federal funding. So um, a lot of individuals, when they talk about MSM, they were still lumping transgender individuals with the MSM, you know, and the AIDS Institute and stuff like that. So we had to um, revamp all of the forms and stuff like that to resonate with who the person was. But back then, um, it wasn't too much that individuals would have had or have done. Yeah. When was the period when they started, when you were revamping the forms and working with the AIDS Institute, like when they were shifting to really think about trans That's people? like in 1999. Yeah. Like in 1999. Like in 1999, that's when AIDS Institute and the Department of Health started off like, um, okay, this is something that is very important. Let's do this, you know. And a lot of people, yeah, that's really when it started rolling out. Then you started to see it a sense of community and a sense of sensitivity and stuff like that. Yeah. Did it create uh, good social services for trans people or jobs for trans people? Well, a, a lot of things take time. And a lot of things take the crawling process of it to say, okay, you know, um, we're not rushing, but we need to get this done. We need to get this visible. And, you know, it takes um, time. It was a few of us that in different organizations and stuff like that. And, you know, um, a lot of people, I think a lot of people have took heed and took uh, practice or um, a sense of mentorship from me indirectly as well as directly. I see that, oh, um, at first I wasn't identifying as trans, but then when I started to speak about um, the trans stuff, that's when, um, you know, everybody was like, wow, you know. So my thing was always education, sending a person back to school. Although I didn't have that much education, I sent a person back to school or just make sure that they're being educated about something or they're volunteering. I always tell folks that if you're not doing anything, you need to be volunteering or working. Yeah. Because there are opportunities out there. Yeah. So you got off the streets and went into rehab and then got more and more involved in HIV services. Yeah. When did CK Life come together? CK Life was um, created and founded back in August 2007. August 2007, which was a crucial year for me. It was a really crazy year for me. What happened? Um, that year, 
the man that helped bring me in this world, he passed away. And then um, at that time, I was not legal. So I tried to get a passport and stuff like that, which I did not know that I was illegal. And dealing with my psych, um, psychiatric um, behaviors, I had no understanding that my family really put me out 30 days and nothing was happening. So then um, there was a situation that I had to... When it comes to incarcerated, I try to avoid being incarcerated, but the way how the law looked at it, it looked like if I was doing fraud or something like that, but I really, I didn't know anything. I didn't know about it. And at that time, I was married. I got married in 2007. I got married in 2007 also. And at that time, I didn't know um, anything until in 2012 they um the feds came and got me and said that they wanted to question me and i'm like what would you want to question me about and they were showing me these pictures at that time i was working at community healthcare network and they wanted to talk to me about what anything do with the feds like you get in food stamps you you want a passport you do, you know so all this stuff i didn't know that documents that i have were my documents personally or all my documents and I did not know that so I had to do like um in psychiatry I had to be in psychiatry lockdown basically like um a very low grade um detention center I had to be locked down and I had to do three hours of psychiatry um three hours of therapy every day for eight months to remember they dealt with cognitive behaviors they dealt, dealt with so many things all the um, guidelines of psychiatry and wanted me and at the end of the, I had to try to remember everything that I've been through in which that a lot of things were so um, dark and didn't make no sense and then I start journaling I start journaling I start to you know think about things that I didn't even start to see things. I didn't even know that was happening. So I started journal. I started writing and stuff like that. That's how my book came about. Yeah. What was the connection between the problems with the feds and the being forced into doing a lot of psychiatry? Like, how did that come about? That came about because they thought that I was I was performing any fraud or anything of that nature. So with me telling them that the only way that I could approve my case is have the psychiatrist, this person, come and grill me every day for three hours and talk about what is you remembering, what's going on. And if I don't talk, they would just sit there and just have me write stuff out or whatever. Whatever came to my mind, I could fall asleep and wake up and it's there. That sounds both very hard, but also maybe a bit helpful. Yeah. Yes, it was helpful to me in the long run. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure what else I when we're my daughter, yeah, my baby girl, uh, 
I got to adopt my baby girl along with my husband back then. I got to adapt her in 2009, 2010. She was born September 23rd, 2009. Yeah. Then I had a son. Also, I had a son. Um, they had um, a foster son at six weeks. He was six weeks. And yeah, we had a conversation. They had conversations with me and they brought my son and stuff like that. But then he had to be taken away because um, they found a aunt for him, a genetic aunt for him, or an aunt with a DNA, I guess, um, biological from the biological father's side. And they said that he would have to go. And I'm like, okay. But my daughter, I was able to keep. Um, she was adopted. And she knows that. Um, so now she's doing so, so beautiful in school. How old is she now? She's nine now. And she's nine now. And she understands everything that's going on around me. Um, yeah. She's into, um, she's great in academics. She does um, gymnastics. She does dancing and stuff like that. And she's really amazing. She's in third grade? Fourth grade. Fourth grade. Yes, she's in fourth grade. Yeah. How, what are some of the ways that you've seen the community change over the years? You've been uh, supporting trans people for so long and you've been involved in events for so long. What are some of the major changes you've seen? Some of the major changes I think that um, it's still got to go a long way is that a lot of visibility is out there and, and the struggle is still here. And a lot of individuals have been getting involved with um, the community. However, like I said, there's still a lot of fighting to be done. Um, there's like, I think that um, a lot of agencies need to hire trans folks and dealing with the equ equity and stuff like that. Um, you know, shooting out the monies instead of holding out the monies and thinks that um, there's MSM dollars or whatever the case may be. There's a lot of trans dollars. And a lot of agencies are getting trans dollars and using it as LGBT money, which did not, you know, um, hire trans folks, put trans folks on the boards, put trans folks and let them be seen, you know, instead of just putting, tokenizing them, put them as an outreach worker, pay educator. That's not right. And I've seen a lot of things, um, a lot of trans folks are getting involved in activism and becoming new leaders and stuff like that. And that's amazing. Um, a lot of trans folks are going back to school and trying to get their education. Um, a lot of trans folks, they also, they want to have children and stuff like that. So the struggle is real. I've seen a lot of things grown and, and I've seen a lot of growth in the trans community. However, there's still a lot more to be done. There's a lot more to be done. What's some of the activism you've seen take shape? Well, some of the activism I've seen take shape, well, gender for one. Um, gender was on the table for like, 17 to 18 years, 17, 18 years. And, you know, I saw that took shape and that was really, really great. Um, I've seen um, individuals able to march as freely as possible without probably being policed. And what else have I seen took shape? 
I just see um, a lot of transgender individuals in a leadership way and stuff like that. So, yeah. Were you involved in advocacy around gender? Yes. Um, just um, a little bit. I was involved in gender since um, before Empire. Before um, em- State. Empire State. Empire State. State Empire. Anyhow, Empire, Empire State. Agenda? Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Empire, Empire Agenda. Um, before they closed down shop and they were fighting for gender, back then it was Matthew, it was Carmen, Vasquez. Yeah, we used to go up to Albany and we used to talk about this. Um, who's fighting for the trans community and stuff like that? Lo and behold, after marriage equality, um, it hit the box and there were no more pride agenda. Yes, pride agenda. There were no pride agenda. And we kind of were disappointed because the folks started to come down to the city. And we were kind of disappointed because we wanted them to be there for us as much as we were there for them. And I think that people um, on the sideline decided to be there for us. That's how um, things are happening these days. Um, I think that what we did was questioning our allies so that our allies could be actually not up in the front, but give us space. Give us space so that um, we can give us space so that we can um, get our laws passed and help us be there for us, you know? Yeah. Why did the Pride Agenda shut down? I'm not sure, you know. I'm, I'm not, I don't remember. No, no, I'm not sure. I don't. I actually don't remember. That's, that's on my mind. Why did Pride of Jenny shut down? I don't remember. I have no. I don't remember. I think it might have something to do with this. We were there for them, but they weren't there for us. Probably, probably. <laughs> I think so. I think so. We were there for them for marriage equality. As soon as marriage equality, I think. Okay, from my own personal thing, I think Pride of Jenny closed out after they got marriage equality passed because they didn't want for anything else. They had all that money just thrown around and stuff like that. So, yeah. So, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Come to think of it. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I don't know. I know a lot about that, but we don't have very many interviews that talk about it. So, it's good to get it a little <laughs> bit in the history. I don't know. The only I love Carmen Vasquez so much. I love She's Carmen. great. Oh my God, I love Carmen. But I think there were one individual that um, probably we didn't get along. Um, Matthew Matthew Morrow. I think his name was Morrow. I know his name was Matthew. I know. And then I was part. Um, I was part of the HIV um, New York State. New York City from de Blasio's office. I was part of that council, the city council. And I think that he, yeah, he chaired it. He chaired, he helped chair the council. And we never even talked. Um, we never talked. How has it been being a parent? Wonderful. I love, love, love being a parent. I look forward to be with her. Um, when I get to pick her up, I'm going to take her to get her hair braided. Yeah, yeah, and I look forward for that this evening. Every evening is a different thing on the schedule, and yeah. Yes. Just my baby. My baby is the end all be all. 
you and I always understand. That's what you tell me. Oh, mommy, I know you fight for me. I know you fight. And we never, um, we don't discuss um, anything about me, period. I guess it's because of my surgeries and stuff like that. So we don't discuss anything about me. She just sees mommy. That's all. She just knows mommy. But her favorite show is RuPaul Drag Race. She loves RuPaul Drag Race. And I have explained to her about that. And then she would watch it and she would choose who's her favorite. And she would be like, oh, mommy, look. These are guys that dress up like girls. And then they, there's a competition. So. And she gets competitive. Oh no, you're not gonna do this. I'm, oh mommy, look here how she talks. So she now had to differentiate like what she sees as a boy is a boy, or who she sees as a girl is a girl. That's it. But I've taught her that um, cause at one point she was like, oh mommy, you know um, I know that boys' hair is short, but you cut your hair and you're so beautiful. You're such a beautiful girl. And I'm like, yeah. I said, girls can't cut their hair too. Girls don't have to have their hair um, long all the time. And she be like, mommy, you think I'm a tomboy? I'm, I'm so beautiful. You think I'm a tomboy? I said, I don't know. You will got to know that yourself. You have to search for that. So a lot of things that she's not a girly, girly, girly. And she, she stopped loving pink. And now she likes blue. And that doesn't put that in. Because she used to play with cards. She stopped playing with cards. You know, there's a lot of things as she grow that she goes into. So. All I tell her, okay, you can talk to your dad about it and see how, how what your dad tell you. Like, yeah. I My uh, child is 10 years old. Awesome. So very close. Awesome. And, uh, going into middle school next year. So she really likes RuPaul's Drag Race, but she doesn't know that you used to be in no. female impersonator no. drag scenes. No. Yeah. No. She choice? sees, like, if she sees me, she sees me perform and stuff like that, but she just sees me as mommy performing. She don't see me, like, if I am part, she don't see me, like, if I'm part of the trans community or anything of that nature. And I don't discuss with her. I feel like, um, at that time, if there's anything to discuss that one day that if she had to ask me, then I'll let her know. She's, um, chapter 123 is in my book, so... I've allowed her to read um, chapter one twenty three, but I haven't allowed her to read none of the book, the balance of the book. But yeah. Tell me about doing the book that came out of some of your time in rehab and therapy. You said. Yeah, a lot of that is in there. I talk about I talk about a lot of my kids. I talk about people that been there for me, and I've been there for them, like mentors or mentees and stuff like that. Um, I talk about my accomplishments and. I talk about my flaws and stuff like that, yeah. I talk about my mom. I talk about my dad. I talk about everybody underneath the sun in that book. It's just... What was the process like for you of putting it together? The process of it, like, um, my... My husband at that time, he's who helped. Um, he's the one that um, helped edit it and everything. I wrote and wrote and talked to the dragon and... I write the way I speak and stuff like that. So he's the one that edited. Yeah, so that process was amazing. Why well, didn't know that he had finished editing it? And then when um, he said, I have something for you, two years ago, 2017, he said, I have something for you. I mean, he showed me in February. He showed me, and I'm like, oh my God. All I did is got so emotional. I'm like, what? I have a book. 
But the ironic thing about it is that a lot of individuals in the trans community did not support the sales of my book, how purchased of my book, anything of that nature. Yeah. Um, everybody else um, contributed to stuff like that. Why do you think there was less support from the trans community? I don't know. I have a thing in the trans community that um, says that I'm a no-nonsense person and as a clinical provider, you know, um, most of the that's three o'clock. That's Naya's alarm. That um, you know, most of the people in the community, you know, sometimes think that I'm the biggest bitch ever. Thinks that um, they have a lot of negative things to say about me uh, because the person who I am, and I think that coming from another country and into here I feel at times they feel like if I should remove myself and step down from being um, a leader and step up and step all this so I step up and step back for many times but I feel like I feel like I've been erased I feel like I'm erased from most of the community because they have leaders you, you would not believe it they have leaders that don't even speak to me they don't even speak to me you know and it have trickled down because they tell people and I think it trickled down from personal stuff but then they put it into professional stuff and that's what bother, bothers me a lot it bothers me a lot like who are you who are you to do such a thing you know yeah Are there particular particular topics that are contentious or divisive in trans communities that you're around? Like, when people are fighting, what do they fight about? A lot of things that the community fight about. I think the community fights for um, a lot of visibility and for education, employment, homelessness, homelessness, and... about the murders and stuff that's happening. Yeah. Sometimes the blacks fight against the whites. So. There's several things on the table that um, individuals fight for in the trans community. Yeah. Are we through yet? Yeah, we can finish up, of course. Because <laughs> um, it's three or four. And... Yeah. Okay. Anything else you want to say? I just want to say that um, as a human being, as a leader, as a visible person, as a public figure, I understand. I understand. I totally get it that People talk about Cardi B. People talk about Beyonce. People talk about Jay-Z. People talk about Obama. I mean, about People talk about all these folks. I'm not exempt from nobody talking about me. You know? People drag, but, but please understand that in a black community, we are already dealing with so many struggles and dealing with so much discrimination and stigma and stuff like that. And I feel like 
every time somebody say you let's work with unity and I get on the line with working with the unity, I turn my back, I get stabbed from the same trans folks that say let's do unity and I feel like or unify and I feel like they just have me there so that other people that know me for many years, all my colleagues that know me for many years from like a state or federal level, will give them a chance. It's like a passageway, it's like a token, it's like, you know, that kind of thing. Like, why do you have me in the room if you're not really there for me? If this is not really for us by us, who am I? I really feel like an outsider. I really do. Sometimes I don't get invited to events. I don't get invited to like, if the mayor is doing something, you know how I go to the mayor stuff or any of the legislation stuff because I am on their listings. And everybody, when they see me, oh my gosh, she's here. Oh my gosh, she's here. I'm like, why? Don't y'all realize how oppressive that is? If now, I am tired of apologizing. I'm tired of apologizing for my tone. I'm apologizing. I'm tired of apologizing for anything, my behaviors. I'm tired of apologizing for that. I am me. I am a human being. I'm a woman. I am this. I am black. Why am I apologizing to another trans person? How I carry myself or whatever. Some of you out there carry yourself worse than I am. And the point is, you can't change my tone. I believe that unhealthy relationships happen when you're trying to change a person. And I'm not going to allow no one to change me. And I keep apologizing. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Very really, truly... I'm not really sorry. I may apologize, but I'm not sorry about nothing. Like, come on now. Don't erase me. Don't erase me. Yeah. Don't erase me. Yeah. Great <laughs> words to end on. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I really appreciate you. It's a pleasure. Time, Ms. Watson. Thank you. It's a pleasure at all times, Michelle. <laughs>